TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system, how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. Vita Ajamu is the manager of community outreach at the National Civil Rights Museum. So she's familiar with the systems of oppression that have existed in, in this country for centuries, but it's not that role that caused us to an ex- to extend an invitation to talk to us here today. She's Robert Ship's sister. Well, you've probably never heard of Robert, and that's because he's one of tens of thousands of Americans who was locked up in the 90s under the draconian practice of mandatory minimum sentencing. He's been in the federal prison system since 1993, and his family, led by Vita, have been right there with him this entire time. The families of people on the inside of our vast jail and prison system bear so much of the burden of the American criminal legal system. We invited Vita on to discuss her experience and tell us about some of the advocacy she's done for her brother and others as part of FAM. Vita, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. Tell us about your brother, Robert. What's he like? What do you, what do you call him, number one? <laughs> so actually, I call him uh, two di- different names. I call him Amir and I call him Twin. We call each other Twin. Oh. We are a lot alike, in fact. Our birthdays are just six days apart. Got it, but you're not actual twins. But we're not actual twins. But close enough for the nickname. Yes, indeed. So what is twin? What is Robert like? So Robert is very intelligent. He actually graduated top of his class, um, and but he has a a bit of a a sense of humor as well. Um, He reads a lot. He is um, just a guy that just loves his family. A guy that, um, in fact, in, even in his situation, he keeps a positive, positive attitude. Where did you all grow up? So Robert is my paternal um, brother. Mm-hmm. And so um, he and my um, my father and my stepmother, they were in Bahia, Mississippi, until Robert was about six years old. And then they moved to Chicago, Illinois. And they lived in Inglewood, which is a rough side of uh, Chicago. Yeah. So um, tell us, you know, about what brought Robert into the into the justice system. Okay. And then, so let me just back up just a little yeah, bit. Sure, so sure. me, myself, um, yeah. I'm from Olive Branch. <laughs> right, right. We were skipped you. Sorry. So yeah. we got Bahalia and Olive Branch. And Olive Branch. And I moved to Memphis my junior year in high school. So Robert went to Chicago. You came to Memphis. Right. Okay. And, and At- Robert... And then so in Robert, um, so let me just tell you a little bit about that. Like I stated, they uh, lived in Inglewood, Mm -hmm. um, the south side of Chicago, where, you know, crime, this is a crime stricken area. Mm -hmm. But um, our brother was murdered. Um, He was stabbed to death at a bus stop. And a few years, you know, Robert actually couldn't deal with it. That was his older brother right there, the guy that he looked up to. And um, as a teenager, he was 16 years old when he died. Robert was 16. Robert was 16 when my brother died. My brother was 19. And so he just began to 
um, rebelled and started hanging with guys. They said, okay, I'll take care of you. I know your brother's gone, and our other brothers are younger than Robert, and we'll take care of you. And my stepmother and my father, they grieved quite a bit. Sure, um, as, you, as you would. As you would. Right. And so that kind of left Robert trying to figure it all out on his own. Um, so actually that led to him getting involved in a drug conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Um, that conspiracy that um, they had been under investigation, I think, for about a year and a half, almost two years. Robert was a part of the the. the um, of this crime for five months. The crime it, being distribution of, of illegal right, drugs. Right, crack. Okay. Crack cocaine. Okay. So in 1993, Robert was indicted and um, arrested and indicted for his involvement in this drug crime. In 1994, he was sentenced to life in prison. Robert was 20 years old at the time. He was sentenced to life in prison. This is in the federal system. This is the federal system, and yes. this was his first contact, serious contact with the criminal justice system or contact at all? Well, this was his first um, ser- drug offense. He had one prior, yeah. and that was possession of a gun. And that was shortly after my fu- my brother was murdered. Okay. And um, he um, was you know, caught uh, with a gun. It was unloaded, but nevertheless, it was still a gun. Right. And did they use that to enhance the the drug sentence? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he got a life sentence at age 20. Yes. And under the mandatory minimum sentencing guidelines. Yeah. um, And and where where did he go? And so um, in the beginning, Robert, well, he he's floated around quite a bit. Oh, let me stop you. Sorry. So a life sentence. Describe to us what a life sentence is in federal, federal uh, the federal system. In, in certain places, it is a number of years. What does it mean? In so, some places, it's natural life. What does it mean in the federal system? Actually, it means natural life. It's life without the possibility of parole. So he was sentenced at 20 at the age to of die 20 to die in prison. Okay. So um, we'll talk a little more about what that meant to you and your family in yeah. a minute. But so logistically, so they send him off to right. a prison right. s- somewhere close to home, far from home, far from home. And actually, Robert has um, he's been in prison, of course, for 25 years now. And he's traveled to several different prisons, 11 different prisons, in fact. And most of the times he's at least eight hours or more away from the family. What's, what's the farthest he's been? That I have traveled to is 11 and a half hours. Oh, my gosh. And I've actually driven that. Where was that? And that was in Hazleton, West Virginia. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so how, well, tell, tell us a little more about the folks who, who, who alongside you support Robert. Who, who else is involved with, with him and in his life still? Okay, so in his, in his uh, involved, actually, I have a lot of support. He has a lot of support. Yeah. Um, I'm the just the person that's in the front uh, <laughs> of this. And so they look for me to tell them what to do. So, of course, my siblings, my stepmother, mm-hmm. my mother actually passed away in 2016. She was one of his major supporters as mm-hmm. well. She loved him like her very own child. Um, but friends, his um, high school friends. Really? They support him. His high school teachers, wow. they support him. This church community that he grew up with. So 25 he, years ago. 25 years ago. And people really, they were shocked that he was involved in that. Yeah. Wow. That's that's really strong. 
So you talked about the travel and the number of facilities. I mean, the 11 facilities over 25 years means that he's moved quite a bit, quite often. Right. That's a challenge for uh, a family, uh, a family with means or a family without means. What are some of the other challenges that having a loved one in, in a prison system that is as vast as the federal one is? What are some of the other challenges that you guys have faced in, in staying connected with him and supporting him? Well, you know, of course, um, the cost of the travel is is terrible mm-hmm. and um, which make it so that you can only visit maybe once, twice. Sometimes I'm fortunate enough to be able to visit him at least three to four times a year, but it's a sacrifice for me. Sure. So I have to trade in vacation time mm-hmm. um, to be with him. And then you're forced with deciding how many people are able to go on this visit because the more people go, of course, the more it costs. But the other part of it is that part of sending money for phone calls, sending money for clothes, for shoes, you know, for underwear. Mm-hmm. Um, Basi- basics, it sounds like. Basic things, uh, phone calls, which they only get 300 minutes a month. A month. So can you imagine ha- um, only having 300 minutes a month to talk to your family? <laughs> so the conversation kind of goes really fast. Like, yeah, that's, uh, you know, hey, Twina, how are you? I'm doing uh, fine. How are you? You know. Do you need anything? You know, is that the uh, only type of communication? So that's the uh, the only other communication is core links, and that's a, a email oh, okay. system. But you have to pay for that. Yeah, you so pay per you email, right? Yes, and so if you don't have monies for that, then you don't mm-hmm. get to do that either. Mm-hmm. And so you're trying to figure out, you know, how many of these do you want to send, or can you send? And then you're they're only allowed to have a certain number of people on that email list. So, which also limits the communications with family and friends. Right, right. And of course, it's it's screened and, and, and filtered. And it's screened, right? it's filtered. Right. So then you're thinking about every time I send my brother an email, right. I'm, you know, it's going to get read and all those things. And some things are very, very personal sure. that you just don't want, you know, everybody to know about. Or even when sometimes I feel like it's things that he want to share with me. Um, sensitive things, yeah. but he would, you know, he would not do that. So I always make sure that I take the time to make the sacrifice to put my eyes on yeah. him, to sit across from him and just see and look into his eyes and know he's okay. Yeah. T- tell us a little about that process. I've done it many times. I've gone to visit someone who's in a prison and it's different for me because I'm a lawyer, but describe yeah. like just from the moment that you pull up to a federal prison, which I have, actually have never been to, uh, describe what it's like to, to drive up to a federal prison and go through the process of sitting across from your brother. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that's, it's, I don't care how many times I've done it. It's tough yeah. because everything about you is checked at that driveway. So forget your economic status, forget your education status, forget um, your job or uh, the position you hold. When you pull into that lot, you're just somebody to come see, come in to see an inmate. Right. And walking into that facility. And then you're just, just kind of just feeling like, ugh. <laughs> and they treat you exactly like that. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's this thing of you're going in and you feel have to fill out this form. And you can only have, um, you know, you can't take anything with you. If you have a jacket, you have to keep that jacket on once you go through that screening process. They do this thing where, they, you know, they check your license and make sure you are on the list. And I'm just going to put a pin right there. And actually, my father wanted to go visit my brother 
um, before he died, he died in 2012. And when he went to go visit him after several years of not being able to go see him because it was so um, hurtful for him. He had taken the wrong um, driver's license. He had taken his expired driver's license versus his renewed Uh-oh. driver's license and how far in a had rush. He, how far had he gone? He went, had gone to Hazleton, West Virginia. Eleven and a half hours. And for him, it was eight, a little over eight hours because he oh, traveled okay. from Chicago. Right, right, right. And they would not allow my father to see my brother. And I, he explained, you can look it up. It's not, you know, they're not uh, expired and um, so for three days, my father was not able to visit. He had to sit in the hotel room while my stepmother visited, as well as my sister and Robert's childhood friend. Um, so even things like that, when you're standing there with your driver's <coughs> license, and, and let me say, my father actually died a few months later, so yeah. he never got to see Robert. Oh. Um, but that thing, when you're standing there with the driver's license, you're like, you know, what? It, okay. Okay, you you go through all that, and so what are you looking for? Right. So then you finally get back there, and after you go through these several different doors, and you hear these doors slam behind you, and at this point you realize that you're in prison too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally. I'm with that yeah, and then so uh, one of the treats of going to visit your loved one is to buy snacks, the food and the beverages, but they increase the prices. The prices are so high. So say, for instance, you know, if 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 your loved one like fries, you know, those frozen fries that right. you get for 99 cents at the grocery store, you pay four dollars for those yeah. fries. Yeah. And that's just that's a terrible thing. So you all will. And then you also have to pay for photos if you want to take a photo. Wow, you have to pay for photos. So yeah. they have the opportunity for you to take photos with your loved one, yes. but you have to pay for them. But you have, you have to send them money ahead of time so they can pay for them because they have to do it through commissary. That's new. Yeah. I have heard that. Yeah. So, and then so sitting across from him, and so in some of the places that I've been, that's all you could do is just sit across. You embrace when you first see them, and then you embrace at the end, but no contact. And... um. And, and and that's a bit tough. I mean, because you're thinking, I've, you know, I've come all this way and I can't even hold my brother's hand. I can't, you know, and I can't console him, like especially after my father passed and having to, um, you know, go and, and see him and yeah. talk to him about that because he wasn't able to attend the funeral. Right. I was going to ask you, so his father and, and his mother have passed since he was uh, sentenced. And have e- in either instance, where, was there any special treatment or anything special that could be done for him? Well, no. And actually, it was his father and, and, and my mother. His mother is still living. His mother oh, is my mother. I'm sorry. Yes, I'm sorry. his mother is my stepmother, and she's still living. And actually, she's raising three of four of my brother's um, uh, grandchildren. He, his daughter was actually two years, almost two years old, when he went to prison. Okay. So she struggled without having her father. Sure. Um, so when my father passed away, he was at uh, Hazleton. No, they did not yeah. allow him to come. He still had that life sentence at that time. Yeah. So he had a life sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the good news is that he no longer has a life sentence. Correct. The bad news is he still has not been released. Right. Um, so 
your brother's sentence was shortened. Um, and I want to, I want to talk to you about that. We, we, we hear stories about people whose sentences are commuted or who are released or, or found, uh, you know, innocent mm-hmm. through DNA or something like that. We see those stories and we kind of hear it through the perspective of the lawyer and the, and the person themselves. Um, what is it like, what was it like for you and your family when you heard that his sentence was shortened and then what's it been like since then as you've been frustrated by his actual release? Well, I have to be honest, um, when I received the information from the attorney, it was a bittersweet um, situation for me. While I am grateful that my brother's sentence was reduced from a life sentence to 30 years, it's still not justice. So it was was 30. It was 30 years, yes. From life to 30, he's been in prison 25 years. He was 20-year-old when he went in and... Yes. Still a 30-year sentence. It's still a 30-year sentence. However, you know, with good behavior time, he has a release date of next year, of November of 2019. But I continue to fight for freedom and justice for my brother because I'm not satisfied with no, that. No. So, you know, some people uh, who, who may be listening to this, I don't know if we have these kinds of listeners, but would say, you know, we didn't talk enough about the conspiracy that okay. you, you mentioned. And and maybe you don't know some of it, but there was no allegation of, of violence. Is that correct? No violence at all. Right. No, not so, at all. So the, the offense that he was convicted of was a conspiracy to distribute illegal drugs, crack right. cocaine, correct? Crack cocaine, absolutely. Right. And no one's life uh, was taken, no no, no violence was inflicted upon anybody in this conspiracy? Is not that, is that accurate? All. Right, that's accurate. Not at all. And in fact, one of his co-defendants received um, clemency a few years ago, just a couple of mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so so the shortening of the sentence at, at this point is... is doesn't mean much. I mean, this, you know, I'll pontificate for a second, I mean, but this could be as much the Federal Bureau of Prisons uh, making a, a, a financial decision more than anything. Well, this happened based on the Sentencing Commission passing this amendment uh, to the guidelines that's called Drugs Minus Two. Okay. And what it did was it, it it decreased by two points any enhancements or w- the points that they used to calculate the guidelines, the sentence itself. So that was done in tw- late 2014. I want to say maybe November, December, something like that. And, um, and this is a move by the Federal Bureau of Prisons right. and, and Probation and Parole. And the Sentencing Commission. Right, yes. which is a federal. federal. So and this was a move by the Obama administration, correct? Right. Absolutely. And so a lot of people advocated for it, mm-hmm. myself included, mm-hmm. as well as FAM and several different organizations advocated for this. And they made it retroactive. And that's how it helped my helped brother. brother. Excellent. Well, perfect segue to FAM. Uh, I was going to ask you about that next. That's an organization that, that you've uh, become involved with because of your brother's situation. Tell us about it and what it does. And we've already heard one of its successes, but tell us about FAM. Okay, so let me just tell you a little bit about how I even got involved with FAM. So I was at this point that I was trying to figure out what do I need to do? I had already researched my brother's case because I wanted to be sure I knew all of the answers. I didn't want to be advocating for something that that wasn't true. And um, he's my brother and I love him very much. But if I didn't feel like he deserved (laughs) to be free, I wouldn't have fought for him. And that's just the honest truth. So I had to learn his case uh, inside out. And once I did that and I thought, oh my gosh, there's so many people around here with situations just like my brother. And I started just, I Googled. I wanted to know who was talking about these issues who was advocating about you know, on, on these issues. And the first thing that popped up was FAM. And at that time, FAM's name was um, 
Families Against Mandatory Minimums. And it just, it was there for me. And I started um, following them. And then um, I called and I said, you know, I need, uh, you know, I, I just feel like I'm spinning my wheels and I need to be around some people that's actually advocating and see how they're doing the work. And then I learned that they had and they told me that they had an event coming up and it was about the Clemency Project 2014. So it was FAM and ACLU hosting an event together. So I took my own money and I booked my flight in my hotel and I flew to D.C. Wow. Just to just to advocate by myself. And I made homemade buttons. I made <laughs> flyers. I put facts on sheets on, on, uh, on the sheets about my brother. I just had information. And I also Googled all the movers and shakers in in that criminal justice realm. So and not only did I Google Google them, I got pictures of them so I could recognize them. Yeah. So when I got to that event and it was a high dollar uh, <laughs> event <laughs> and um, but it was well worth it. That's all they know how to do in D.C. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> high dollar. And it was but it was, uh, you know, it was a really, really good event. And it was I'm assuming it was a fundraiser to uh, continue the advocacy. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. But they actually had people there that had been granted clemency. Yeah. So not only did I get a chance to talk to people that were helping to get people home, I actually got to, the opportunity to talk to people that had received clemency. And that meant a lot to me. So if anybody made eye contact with me that I recognized from my list, <laughs> I beeline, oh, you great. know, to them. And I told everybody about everyone that would listen about my brother. I had my elevator speech ready and, and that actually went really well because I actually got a chance to meet the person that filed my brother's clemency petition. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then also I got to meet the person that later filed for my brother's, the attorney that filed for his sentence reduction. So that connection. So yeah. I networked just like I would do for my job. Yeah, that's very important to yes. have, have those, you know, direct connections with those people. And yes. and ultimately resulted in your brother, you know, benefiting from this uh uh, from this change from the sentencing commission, what other things defense? So fam's about telling stories and, and presenting sort of the dignity of the people and their families yes. who are, who are behind bars. What other things besides direct legislative or, or, or regulate regulatory advocacy do they do? So they host rallies um, here in this past July. I was able to be a part of their um, a crim criminal justice uh, reform rally that they had. And I was able to speak at that rally and that you know, at that uh, event, I was able to be around not only advocates and legislators, but family members that we are all fighting for the same thing. You know, it's such a stigma uh, to have someone um, in prison. People think a certain way about people when you say that you have a loved one in in prison. So. In my even with myself, so it took me a moment to get out to talk about my brother. Uh, I want to change that. I want to be a part of uh, changing that that mindset, that narrative about people uh, that have loved ones incarcerated. So that's one of the things that they do. So they host different um, events to discuss and to talk about um What's going on? They update family members on the different changes in laws. Mm -hmm. They even help us 
advocate with our lawmakers. Yeah. So they provide a toolkit. And when I was in um, D.C., the day after the rally, we spent that next day going to the Hill and talking yeah. to our lawmakers. So that's that's really good. So they do a lot. Yeah, well, let's let's talk a little bit about those lawmakers and the country's the country's mm-hmm. politics. And yeah. we we talked about this one change that that did occur. It occurred during an administration that had had very vocally said we're going to address some of these disparities in sentences and some of these uh, really uh, unjust sentences, like the one your brother got. And and the current administration is pretty much direct op- directly opposite of that. They have uh, you know added to the federal prison system, and and the attorney general has has you know pushed for. Uh, more sentencing and has, has, you know, threatened additional, uh, you know, facilities even. So how do you maintain hope and what does FAM's approach when the environment is like like it is today politically? I have no choice but to maintain hope. I'm optimistic. I I look at where we are now compared to where we were when I started. I think that if I give up hope, my brother would give up hope, and that cannot be. And so, and not only do I help my brother, I help other family members as well. And they look to me for advice and look to me for um, that support. And it's important just to continue to say and believe that these things are going to happen, but they're not going to happen without action. So I know if I just keep pushing at it, along with others, that change will happen. Yeah, that's incredible. That's really inspiring. Um, and to say that, you know, if you give up hope, you think your brother might, and that's reason enough. That's uh, very powerful. What about uh, what about the rest of us who don't have uh, loved ones uh, on the inside? What can we do? How can we support you, and how can we support FAM? Well, I think, well, one of the ways, I have a petition for my brother on change.org. So if you go to change.org and you search Robert Ship two Ps, then um, you can sign and share, please, that petition. I think it's about 151,000 signatures thus far. Oh, wow. And then there's also a video that was produced by FAM of my advocacy, and um, you can find that on YouTube, and that's Vita Ajamu, colon, Warrior for Justice. I'll say. And that's just really um, shares just the, my inside story of um, how I began to advocate for my brother and what it means to me. In terms of FAM, you can help FAM. Uh, you go on FAM.org, F-A-M-M.org, and there are several ways that you can help. You can donate to FAM. You can become a member. You can su- support their work. And you can become a partner. And... Um, and just understand, get an understanding of what it is they, that they do and um, how we can move the needle forward. Yeah. Wow. Great. What, a, what an amazing organization, an amazing story. And I would be remiss, though, if I didn't uh, talk to you a little bit about your day job, okay. uh, which is uh, at this National Civil Rights Museum. Yes. What's new there? Why should we uh, why should we go go visit? Oh, we have so many different things. So we are not, we are not just a, a museum. 
We are a, a catalyst, a catalyst for change. So we have those difficult conversations and we have great programming to bring the community in and just, um, you know, when, when I say difficult conversations, we have conversations like we have this uh, cohort uh, program by the name of Unpacking Racism. And so we dig into all of those different things. And then we also have a catalyst for change speakers uh, that come Come in and talk on various topics. We have book talks. And then here recently, we just had, um, and we have a film, a, a documentary film a series. And we just had one in September by the name of The Sentence. Yeah. And it actually um, shares the story of a brother fighting for uh, clemency for his sister. And she did, um, in fact, get clemency. And the film director, he was just basically documenting documenting his uh, his um, sister's children and it turned into a film and I actually met him we were on the sidelines together advocating at a rally yeah and you brought it in to tw- Memphis in 2016 and I brought it to Memphis mm-hmm. and and it really has opened the minds and hearts mm-hmm. of so many people we hear from the we hear from organizations, experts, and we hear from some formerly incarcerated individuals, but we do not hear a lot from the family members that's doing the time with their loved ones that's impacted. They can tell you how this not only hurt the person that's in prison, but the family members as well. Yeah, since 1993, it's it's been like you've been in prison as well. It's been know. like I've been in prison as well. Yeah. So we serve the time too. Yeah. Well, Vita, thank you so much for joining us. These are uh, this is incredible work that you're doing, whether it be through big, uh, powerful in- institutions like the Civil Rights Museum or sitting at your computer by yourself googling uh, the members of of this commission. You're just that's inspiring work, and thank you for doing it, and thank you for sharing with us today. Thank you so much for having me here. I appreciate it. That was Vita Ajamu in conversation and on the permanent record. My thanks to Vita for spending some time with us and to her family for all they've done to support Robert while he's on the inside. We look forward to his release and we'll celebrate alongside that whole family when it happens. Maybe we'll even get Robert at this table to talk to us. Visit FAM at FAM.org. Like Vita said, that's F-A-M-M dot org to find out more about them and how you can help bring more people like Robert home to their families. You can also follow FAM on Twitter and Facebook. They're very active there. Special thanks to Joya Thornton, Just City's Program and Community Engagement Coordinator, for helping produce this episode. And as always, thanks to the OAM Network, Gil and Carla Worth, for their support of the podcasting community in Memphis. Check out some of their other shows at theoamnetwork.com. Jeff Hewlett, of course, wrote and performs She Got Gone, the original theme music for The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, and this is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. You can learn more about our work at JustCity.org. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at JustCity901. And make sure you're subscribing to The Permanent Record wherever you get your podcasts. And we're on Spotify now, too, which is much more convenient than some of those podcast apps. So follow us there, too. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. OAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast.